Acts chapter 14. We are in the middle of Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey. They went to the island of Cyprus and uh, proclaimed the gospel there. And they sailed from Cyprus up to the mainland of Asia Minor. And they went to Antioch in Pisidia, a town there in Asia Minor, and were rejected by the Jews, announced this turn to the Gentiles, and then went on from Antioch in Pisidia to the town of Iconium. So we'll read today about what happened in Iconium. It was a pretty exciting time, including Paul being stoned to death. So here it is, Acts chapter 14. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews, and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, into the surrounding region. And there they were preaching the gospel. And in Lystra a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped up and walked. Now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying in the Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying out and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you, and preach to you that you should turn from these vain things to the living God, who made the heaven, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. With these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitudes from sacrificing to them. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. However, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and went into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us the grace to focus on your word, to hear about this turn to the Gentiles, to see that your gospel divides, but your gospel also corrects and heals, and that it makes disciples. Lord, we pray that you would correct us today, heal us today, make us disciples of Jesus, who hear his word and desire to obey him. 
Help me to speak boldly and accurately what's written in your word. And we pray that you would draw your people to know you better through this. In Jesus' name, amen. Lots of excitement. Go to a city, you preach there until the mob gets so uproarious that you have to flee. Then you go to the next city and do it all over again. Paul and Barnabas were not in any danger of getting bored on their mission trip. They weren't in need of tourist sites to fill their time. They had plenty of things going on just by going into synagogues and preaching and then following up with the people who were converted and keeping those who weren't converted from literally killing them. That's essentially the story that Luke told, both in the last chapter and in this chapter. He makes several points about the gospel. He shows us the gospel's advance, that the gospel converts people, it makes disciples. The gospel has enemies, it converts some people, and the rest, many of the rest, are hardened against it and fight it with everything they've got. So as the gospel advances, it also makes enemies, but it continues to retain power, even to the point of seemingly raising Paul from the dead. So we'll look at this. Ministry to Jews continues. The power of the gospel continues to advance. The kingdom of Christ continues to reign over new people in new places. Luke's first point, one that we've seen many times, the gospel divides. When you preach the word about Jesus, some people love it and some people hate it. That happened in Iconium. Paul and Barnabas went to the synagogue and there they preached the word. Now at the end of the last chapter they announced, we're turning to the Gentiles, we're done with Jews. Now the next day they're back in the synagogue. How? Why? What's going on? Well, they're not done with Jews in the sense that they will never again try to convert Jews. But Paul is saying primary ministry from now on will be to Gentiles. We expect most of the converts, most of the action to be among Gentiles. That doesn't rule out ministry to Jewish people. And that's why they started in the synagogue. But it appears that they got basically one shot at the synagogue in Iconium before the Iconium synagogue people said, you know, we don't want you in the synagogue. In fact, we want you dead. The gospel divides. But first, first comes the good news, right? It divides in the positive sense too. It divides by saving some. They so spoke that a great multitude, both of Jews and of Greeks, believed. Luke credits how they spoke with the salvation of many Jews and many Greeks. They spoke in such a way that people listened and believed. Now, if we share the gospel at all, we often kind of think, well, this is how I share the gospel. Take it or leave it. I have a way I can do it, and that's the way you're going to get. 
But Paul and Barnabas spoke in a persuasive way. They spoke in a way that made people who heard them want to believe what they were hearing. They juiced their ethos, pathos, and logos to the max, we could say. And so it should be with us. We should certainly know the Christian faith intellectually and be able to explain to people what it is that they need to believe. That would be the the logos, the logical part of rhetoric. But you also have to have a believable, believable ethos. If the people around you know you as a jerk face, it really doesn't matter how good you are at explaining what's in the Bible. Your ethos is in the basement. Right? It's buried. It's gone. And no matter how well you explain Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus saves, Jesus rose again, people are going to say, well, whatever Jesus is, he hasn't done much for you. So why should I believe you? And Paul and Barnabas lived in a way that it was very clear that Jesus had done something for them. Paul was obviously something of a minor celebrity in religious circles. And it was clear that whatever Jesus had done for him, it was some notable change. It had taken him from a murderous bigot to a self-sacrificing evangelist who spent all his time, all his money on going around and getting beat up trying to persuade people to believe in Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas spoke the truth, but they spoke it with an ethos that gave them credibility. And they also spoke with pathos, like they actually believed it. Not just saying, here's something I've heard. You know, this is a corporate training and I have to stand up here and be the talking head that tells you things that I don't care about and you don't care about. Nobody cares about, but we have to go through them anyway. That's not how they presented it. They spoke as, this has changed my life and I plead with you to let it change yours. That's how Paul and Barnabas spoke in Iconium. And the gospel divides. It cuts across all natural affinity groups. Some Jews believed. Some Jews didn't believe. Some Gentiles believed. Other Gentiles didn't believe. The gospel divides between Jews and Jews and Gentiles and Gentiles. As Jesus mentioned, it cuts right through families. There are some in a family who believe and others who don't. It divides whole cities, which is what happened here. Right, Verse 4, the multitude of the city was divided. And ultimately, at the end, the gospel divides the world between the saved and the lost. Luke is telling us what matters is not whether you're Jewish or Gentile. What matters is whether you're saved or lost, whether you believe in Jesus or reject him. The gospel divides. Some believe. Others reject. The disobedient Jews, those who rejected the gospel, stirred up the Gentiles. They led the charge to poison their minds against the brethren. The Jews led the charge, but they weren't alone in the charge. And that charge was to get rid of Paul and Barnabas. If we can get these people out of town we will be much happier. 
who's that? Gary Larson, these old west architects never built their towns big enough. But the problem is not that Iconium was too small. No city is large enough that those who preach the gospel and those who hate the gospel can coexist in peace. One will eventually drive out the other. So it is here. The unbelieving Jews attempt to get rid of the apostles. And notice how verse 3 starts. Therefore, they stayed there a long time. Why did they stay a long time? They stayed a long time because there was a concerted effort to get rid of them. They knew that the new believers needed more help, more care, because they were living in a hostile environment. And therefore, they stayed a long time. The apostles stood strong. Luke emphasizes not only their persuasiveness, how they spoke, but also their boldness. They knew they were in trouble for speaking, and so they kept speaking. Being in trouble didn't bother them. Being in trouble didn't make them say, I think we need to leave now because I hate being in trouble. No, therefore they stayed. But the city is divided. The Lord stood with the apostles. He bore witness to the word of his grace. He granted signs and wonders to be done by their hands. God came through for them in an amazing way. This is not saying that the Lord always will. There have been plenty of missionaries and evangelists who say, God, please do something. Please show these people that you're real and God seemingly doesn't do anything. But here he did. Here he did signs and wonders which people can still reject. There is no miracle so persuasive that everyone who sees it will say, oh, now I believe in Jesus. Jesus appeared in person and spoke to people like Herod and Pilate who continued, lived, and died as non-believers. The Roman soldiers who guarded the tomb were not sure about them, but clearly Pilate was not phased by the reality of the resurrection. Just because the Lord does signs and wonders doesn't mean people will believe any more than just because somebody reads the Bible or hears a sermon means they will believe. The gospel divides. Some believe Others do not. The gospel ends up generating this Jews versus apostles dynamic in the city. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. What is Luke telling us? The Jews led the opposition to the gospel. He already made it clear that Gentiles were opposed to the gospel too. But at the end of the day, a fair summary of the two parties is Jews versus apostles. It's possible to err in excess and say everything that's opposed to the Christian faith must be somehow Jewish. That's not true. Luke, for example, doesn't suggest later in the book that Felix wanted a bribe because of some kind of Jewish plot. Felix was just a greedy Roman politician. But others can err in defect and say Jews never do anything to oppose the gospel. That's not true either. Luke is our guide. He shows us that oftentimes Judaism and Jewish people are at the forefront of opposition to the gospel. But at the same time, not all opposition is Jewish opposition. 
Thus, for instance, in many countries, even today, the strongest opponent of the gospel is what? The established, allegedly Christian church. Most persecution of Christians has been carried on by other Christians. So, the disobedient Jews attempt violence. Verse 5, they try to abuse the apostles. They try to stone them. Uh, Supposedly, Fidel Castro survived 638 assassination attempts. So they say. I have a hard time believing that the CIA is that incompetent. But Paul didn't survive maybe quite that many. But if you read Acts, certainly on every other page, somebody is trying to kill him. The apostles leave, they leave Iconium, and they flee to Lystra and to Derbe, these cities in Lycaonia. When they persecute you in one city, Jesus said, flee to the next. So the gospel divides, and when the division has reached a point where it's unsafe to stay, move, go on, get out. It's okay to leave. What you're not allowed to do is shut up even though what they object to is not your existence, but your speaking. Paul and Barnabas flee, but in the new cities, they continue to speak. They were preaching the gospel there. So in Lystra, some pretty amazing stuff happens. Like Peter, who healed the lame man back in Acts chapter 3, like Jesus, who healed the lame man in Luke chapter 5 that we read a few moments ago, now we see Paul healing a lame man. There's this man, a cripple from his mother's womb who had never walked. Paul tells him to stand up and be healed. And he stands up and he's healed. The gospel divides, but the gospel also heals and corrects. It comes and heals this sick man in Lystra. And the Lystrans are so impressed. Oh, here's something supernatural. Here is something worth worshiping. They have this acute sense of the divine. They see that some kind of supernatural power is at work and they start getting ready to worship Paul and Barnabas. And they're talking about their preparations in their own language, which Paul and Barnabas don't know. The Lycaonian language, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men, calling Paul Hermes and Barnabas Zeus. Paul and Barnabas don't understand what's happening because they can't understand the language. They don't get it until the priest shows up with oxen and garlands for sacrifice. And then they say, "Uh uh-oh, there's been a mistake. No, please, uh uh-uh, don't worship us. I'm not Zeus. I'm not Hermes. Stop. All the commentators relate the story of Philemon and Baucus, this pagan story from ancient mythology, which is set in the same region as Lystra, there in Lycaonia, It's this old couple who show hospitality to the gods, to to Zeus and Hermes, or something like that, who come and visit them. And supposedly, perhaps, the Lystrans knew this story and were very ready to be visited by the gods. Who knows whether the Lystrans actually knew the story, but certainly the story is there. You can read it in Ovid's Metamorphoses, for example. Here are the people of Lystra, They're ready to sacrifice. Remember, Peter healed at the gates of the temple. And then verse 13, the priest of Zeus brought oxen to the gates. 
Again, we have gates involved in this healing miracle. Paul and Barnabas stop it, do their best to say, no, don't worship us. We're not God. Yes, God came down as a man, though that's not the message that they preach at first. Rather, Paul and Barnabas give this other speech, men, why are you doing these things? And they make five points. They redirect that worship to the living God. Don't worship your fellow human beings. Even if we were Zeus and Hermes, you shouldn't worship us. You should worship the God who made the heaven and the earth. Their points start like this. First, we are men and not gods. Don't worship creatures. We're of like passions with you. Men with the same nature as you. We're not better than you. We're not elevated over you. Don't come and worship us. Instead, Paul says, we preach the good news that you should turn from these vain things to the living God. Who is this living God? Well, he's the creator and he's the sustainer. But Paul has also called Zeus and Hermes vain things. Your idols are empty. They can't save. Now that's the tricky part in the Christian proclamation. If this is true, a pagan can rightly ask, why have we never heard it before? How is it that we've been worshiping Zeus and Hermes for hundreds and hundreds of years? If they're so fake, you would think we would have caught on by now. So what does Paul say? Well, he explains it with two points. The first point is, in the past, God allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. God just lets you go, wander off wherever you wanted to wander off. This is part of Christian doctrine, the understanding that up until the time of Jesus, God let the nations go. He didn't attempt to interfere. He didn't send prophets, by and large. He didn't send evangelists or missionaries. The nations were cursed in their sin and left to their own devices. They could wander where they would. For two millennia, God worked in a single family, which became a single tiny nation. So if you remember, right, Campbell County is 4,800 square miles. Modern Israel is about that same size. What we would call a tiny nation. That's where God worked, in an area the size of our county. The rest of the nations, the entire rest of the earth's surface, he left alone. That's why you still believe in Zeus and Hermes, Paul tells them. That's why you think of the story of Philemon and Baucus sets you up for visits from supernatural beings. God left you alone, but now he calls you to repent, which is where Paul is going. He doesn't quite get there. Instead, he just says, even though God left you in your own ways, 
he did do something to keep his memory alive. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness. How did God witness to himself? He did it through generosity. He gave us, he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. God's generosity is something that every nation has experienced. The goodness of God in sending regular weather, regular crops, regular food, the joy of feasting together with loved ones. Every nation has gotten to experience that in some measure. That's a gift from God. If you love that, love the God who gave it to you. That's where Paul is going. The knowledge of God the Creator, the knowledge of God the generous, who didn't create a world where we all take one gray pill every morning, and that's our nutrition for the day. God who created a world in which there are tens of thousands of cookbooks, cooking magazines, cooking shows, farms and orchards, and plant life of all descriptions. That's the God that I'm here to tell you about. Not Zeus, who goes around raping people. Not Hermes, who's kind of a dummy. No, the true God, who left you to walk in your own ways, with only this caveat. He showered you with gifts, year in and year out, for the last two millennia. That's Paul's speech. Nothing about Jesus, nothing about sin, nothing about salvation, not exactly what we would consider good news. But Paul and Barnabas preach that. We're preaching to you God the Creator, God the Sustainer. And dealing with pagans and dealing with people who don't have the foggiest idea about the Christian message this can be a good place to start. Tell them, God made this world. You like tasty food? He gets the credit. So that's what Paul does. He corrects their pagan worship. He points them to the God who made the world, who witnesses to himself, and they did succeed in keeping the multitudes from offering sacrifice to them. They were able to stop the priest of Zeus. Now, Calvin speculates that the priest of Zeus saw an opportunity to turn his city into a pilgrimage site. Come see the place where Zeus and Hermes walked. That could be why the Lycaonians were so eager to offer sacrifice to them. Not in the text. But the gospel comes and it corrects that pagan worship and says, no, don't worship Ordinary men who are here and have the power to heal worship the God who made the world and gave food and gladness. But the gospel continues to divide. The gospel generates ferocious opposition from the disobedient Jews. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came to Lystra. Lystra appears to have been a place without Jews, at least Luke doesn't mention any. The Jews from far away, Iconium is 20 miles. 
Antioch is 100 miles from Lystra. 100 miles in those days is a two and a half day trip. Right? Roughly about the amount of time it takes to drive to Pennsylvania. These Jews are dedicated because to go there two and a half days, to spend enough time to rouse a mob and get Paul driven out, and then make two and a half day trip home. That's an entire week out of their life dedicated to traveling over to this faraway place and driving the apostles out. The opposition is not mild. It's not confined to little op-eds in the Iconium Morning News where Jewish people say, we sure wish that these renegade Jews would go away and stop bothering us. There is mob action, mob violence, supported by people from far away who are giving freely of their time and money to come and stir up the crowd against Paul. And they're successful to the point that they get the crowd to stone Paul. This guy is so bad that you need to throw rocks at him until you've broken every bone in his body and crushed the life out of him. How do you persuade people that an itinerant missionary who's been in town for a couple of days is so evil that he should be stoned by a mob? Luke doesn't tell us. But obviously, whoever these mob instigators were, they were dedicated. They really, really wanted to be rid of Paul. And so that's the approach that they took. They apparently successfully murdered him. However, the Christians come out, gather around him, and Paul stands up and says, I'm fine. Now, is this a resurrection from the dead? Almost. No, if somebody is stoned, presumably a lot of their bones are broken, if not all their bones. A lot of internal organs are damaged. They're, they've been hit on the head really hard. Their brain is probably not going to function right anymore. But by the power of God, Paul gets up and goes right back into Lystra. The gospel generates opposition, but its power to heal is greater than the power of the opposition. The reign of Christ is more powerful than the opposition to the reign of Christ. The next day, he goes back to Derby. And, well, he goes on to Derby, and when they had preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples, they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. Wow. Paul, they killed you. It doesn't really get any more aggressive than that. Not only did they kill you, they got the mob to kill you. They rallied the whole city to kill you. And what do you do? You preach the gospel, and then you go right back to all those cities where they just tried and apparently succeeded to kill you. What is Luke telling us? Well, the gospel makes disciples and the gospel changes lives. Paul cared more about his mission of preaching than he did about preserving his own life, covering his tail, feathering his nest. Now Luke is not writing this to tell all of us to be apostles. And so you all should go be like Paul. That's not how he concludes it. 
Rather, what is he saying? The gospel divides, so make your choice. Do you stand with the apostles? Or do you stand with the Jews? If it comes down to Jew versus apostle, like verse 4, non-Christian versus Christian, God or Satan, which one do you pick? Well, Luke's answer is obvious. You need to pick Christ. You need to stand with Jesus, which means standing with the apostles, which means sometimes getting beat up, getting stoned, getting the mob angry at you. Now, none of us are going into a week where we think, yeah, it's pretty likely that the things I do this week are going to make the mob come and stone me. But it's still a week in which we will have the chance to stand with Christ or to turn against Him. Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. How do we stand with Christ? Oh, we listen to the apostles' teaching. Right? Luke summarized that at the beginning. The apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayer. Those four things need to characterize your life if you're standing with the apostles. And also, support Christian work. Possibly by giving money, possibly by giving time, possibly by serving as an officer in the church, possibly in other ways that God is calling you, certainly by discipling your children, by standing for Jesus at your workplace, and especially at home. Stand with the apostles. The gospel divides. Make sure you're on Jesus' side. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that the good news came to Iconium, to Lystra, to Derby. Father, we thank you for the zealous the zeal and perseverance of Paul and Barnabas. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand with Christ. Help us to understand that the gospel divides and that we cannot be on both sides. That we can't stand with you and against you. And we can't stand with the apostles and with the Jews. That we have to be on one side or the other. So as the gospel divides, help us to stay on the right side, to submit to your Son, to walk with him, to serve him in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our church. Lord, we praise you that your kingdom is coming and that the opposition to your kingdom will not and cannot triumph. We bless you in your Son's name. Amen.